projects need a really strong leader. As a kid, I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to have a store. That was literally my dream. This is a business that needs to run and operate as a business. There is a curation at every level, really elevating the space for all of the artists, making sure that the quality is fine, right? We're talking about fine art. I love my three pillars, getting your art on walls, exhibition, displays, inventory management. I work mostly in collage. I like glue and paper. As much as I love to read, I also love to tear up old books. I'm sure there's some psychology to be read into that. I'm not going to examine it. Somebody else can. Welcome to Angel City Culture Quest, where art, social justice, and the environment meet in Los Angeles. I am your host, Melina Paris, and I welcome you to this episode. Hello, culture lovers. This is your host, Melina Paris. For several months, we have been bringing you inspiring guests along with stimulating content about their work. As with anything, there are costs to keep this podcast going. So if you're able, join me in this quest with your support. Think of it as a cultural tip jar to share any amount that you're comfortable with. Or you can make a regular offering with as little as $4 a month. This will contribute to my ability to continue bringing you the great work of these artists, activists, and others, plus the cultural content that you want to hear about. I appreciate you, and I would be honored to have your support. To join, please go to our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash Angel City Culture Quest. There, you can also see all of our past episodes, get early announcements, and find more perks to come. Thank you. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Melina Paris. Today, we're discussing the business of art, going to school with Kay Ryan Hennessy of Art Lounge Collective. Kay Ryan Hennessy brings years of experience in the arts and premium luxury retail to fine art management and curation with Art Lounge Collective. Ryan is an award-winning artist and recent recipient of a public arts grant from the city of West Hollywood. His fine art has appeared throughout California and in locations that include international galleries and museums. Ryan previously worked for major cruise lines, overseeing product management and publication for a half-billion-dollar segment of the global tour industry, among other notable accolades. Until very recently, Ryan was the president of Tag Gallery in Los Angeles. And in May of this year, he opened Art Lounge Collective in the Miracle Mile District of Los Angeles. Hello, Ryan. I'm glad to have you here today. How are you? Hello, I'm excellent. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited to chat. So I want to let our listeners know, today we're examining art through a different lens than we typically do at Angel City Culture Quest. To put it simply, the business of art. At first, this may seem curious, but stick with us to understand better how important what Ryan calls the democratization of art is. First, a little background on our guest. Ryan always wanted to be an artist, 
even as a child. His family always encouraged him in this pursuit, but they also said that art won't pay the bills. So what else will you do? After earning his teaching credential and while he was teaching, Ryan earned a master's degree in English literature from Cal State University, Bakersfield. He thought with teaching, he'd have plenty of leisure time to be an artist. Also, while he was teaching, he was vice president of the local union, which he says gave him a lot of contract experience. He then moved into marketing and communications for small organizations, sometimes as a volunteer, sometimes as an employee. He spent 10 years as a public educator, five years with small organizations. He then moved into large corporate cruise entities, specifically working for the premium luxury brands within Carnival Corporation, which include Princess Cruises, Holland America Line, and Seabourn Australia. In 2018, Ryan joined TAG, or the Artist Gallery, as a member of the organization. In spring 2019, he became the president of TAG and had full authority as CEO of the operation. Ryan notes he took a heavier hand than many of his predecessors with the organization, meaning he held more control of the board than the board held over him. They had been used to a board-managed situation. Ryan flipped those circumstances, and he said he had many good things come out of that. So you said, Ryan, that you took a very corporate approach and started to apply it at TAG. Can you explain how you did that and the three important things that you did during your time as president there? Yeah, absolutely. So some of my big takeaways from working with Cruz was that projects need a really strong leader. And in the cruise industry, what you're talking about, just for that segment that I worked with, which is a quarter of all of the cruise ships in the world, about 52,000 total employees, about two and a half million customers served per year on 42 to 46 vessels that are literally moving around the world. And so that's quite a logistics nightmare for anyone, even when you're an office worker like I was. And what it meant is that at the executive level, you had to have buy-in for projects. Otherwise, a project wouldn't move forward. And that executive level buy-in wasn't just, we want you to do this. It was somebody who really worked for it and pushed for that project to move forward. And that's the mentality that I brought to TAG was in my role as the president meant that if I wanted a project to succeed, I needed to be the one to drive it forward. If a board member wanted a project to succeed, they needed to be the one to drive it forward. Uh, there was a lot of ideas thrown out over the years. And my answer to every idea was great. Who's going to spearhead that project? And if nobody raised their hand, it didn't move forward. There were many, many things that we worked on at TAG. But for me, there were kind of three areas that we really needed to focus on in order to improve the overall business itself, which is a not-for-profit mutual benefit organization under California law. And those were ensuring that curation was elevated across the board. And that meant having difficult conversations with many of the artists about the artwork that they were choosing to show, the amount of artwork that they were choosing to show, and how they were choosing to show it. 
artists tend to think that they're really good designers because they can arrange something on paper or on canvas. But translating visual beauty from a flat two-dimensional object into a three-dimensional room isn't necessarily a translation that every artist is capable of. And really understanding the design and the curation of their artwork, understanding that not every piece of artwork you as an artist make is ready for public consumption These are important things to discuss. Also, knowing that you've made a ton of artwork over your time being an artist, whether that's a few months or 20, 30 years of creation, you can't show it all at once. (laughs) Emptying your garage, your studio space or your storage into a gallery doesn't work. That conversation about curation and really holding fast to some rules that everyone agreed to collectively on how we were going to display art was really important. That was one of the first pillars that I pushed. And it was certainly difficult for some of the artists, but necessary for all of the artists. The second part of that was advertising. A lot of artists don't think about it, but advertising is a creative field. It can't be separated from art and art can't be separated from advertising. Mm -hmm. Designers, graphic designers are artists. In fact, they're the largest group of artists in the United States. And understanding that advertising and art go hand in hand is really important to making sure that your art business moves forward. So what we really did was focus on how we could better utilize advertising. And that meant increasing the budget from something that was on average around $2,000 a year, uh, really focused only on the competition shows for the organization, to advertising across the board, print, social media, web advertisements that focused on the artwork for the vast majority of the year and shifted gears for both artist recruitment, but also the recruitment for those two competition shows that we would run each year. Uh, And I changed the budget from 2000 to around 15,000 per year. And that was a really helpful thing for the organization as a whole. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And the nice thing about uh, an artist collective is you have skill levels from a whole host of different backgrounds. And we had, uh, and TAG still has a number of really strong and successful graphic designers and advertisers in the organization. And we utilize those skills to create beautiful designs for print magazines like Mm. Artillery. And really pulling in from those resources was important for that organization. And then the third thing that we did, which became even more important during 2020 and 2021 because of the COVID pandemic, was community outreach. By the time I took over the presidency for the organization, TAG had been at its Miracle Mile location on Wilshire for three years. And very few members of the community even knew that we were there. The mailing list was largely based out of Santa Monica, where TAG had originated and then had grown quite a bit during their time in Bergamot Station, which is still adjacent to Santa Monica. And that relationship with the community didn't cross over all the way into the Mid-City at Miracle Mile. And Mid-City didn't know who we were. So part of what we did was invite the community. We worked with the Miracle Mile Chamber of Commerce. 
And we made sure to advertise with the Miracle Mile Chamber of Commerce. We, (laughs) yeah, we attended (laughs) meetings. We would donate artwork for the raffles at their mixers. And then we also made sure that we were more welcoming to the community as a whole. And during 2020, after the initial lockdowns reopened and allowed us to function again, what was really nice is that the local neighborhood was at home. People were still working from home. And instead of being gone during the day when we were open, they were there. And we were a safe place with a big vaulted ceilings and huge expansive rooms that they could come and visit to take a break from the daily apartment and home living in the neighborhood. And we made sure that we had masks available for everybody that walked in. We made sure that we had hand sanitizer. The poor staff was cleaning every day. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate. Yeah. But it's important that, and that's so great because it shows support of the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And through 2020 and 2021, the results across all three of those categories, really elevating the space, elevating the curation, doing advertising, and focusing on engagement with the community, we saw an average increase of double daily attendance and double event attendance with many of the events seeing triple and quadruple the amount of attendance during that period. And so even though we'd have to spread out the hours for an opening night, for instance, we would have 1200 person nights. Wow, that's amazing. And it's wonderful that that could be done. And it was the perfect timing. It was the perfect timing trying to come out of this pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I used that time to really focus on all of the consumer data that we had collected. I had 15 years of data by the time I left this summer from TAG to look at and to explore. And using that data over time, I was able to have conversations with the entire artist group about what people are actually buying in terms of price points and in terms of size. Uh, in terms of framing and finish. And so artists, not all of the artists, but many of the artists started to work towards the actual things that people were shopping for. Uh, Not necessarily in terms of subject, but when we were talking about size, when we were talking about price, those became really important. And because of that, in 2021, we had the second best sales year on record, second best budget year on record short only by $2,000 from the best year on record, both of which were more than $60,000 in income higher than any other year. So very hugely expansive years for a not-for-profit organization. And those numbers meant we were able to reinvest and reinvigorate and to pay for the advertising, right? So it's kind of the cyclical loop that you have to pay attention to when you're looking at art as a business. And that was kind of the big change that I brought with me to tag is it's not just artists putting on their displays. This is a business that needs to run and operate as a business. Well, moving to Art Lounge Collective, you have an edifying, inclusive and pragmatic approach in working with the artists in Art Lounge Collective. You said Art Lounge chooses all the artists and there are many factors in that But most important to you is making sure that Art Lounge is keeping the quality of the artwork even across the board. What do you mean by that? 
That's a really hard question to answer because it's almost ephemeral in its nature. What makes good art, right? But there are actually some key elements to really that democratization of art, both for the artists and for consumers. And it's worth clarifying that I am concerned with consumers, not collectors. We're looking at everyday people. And for the art lounge, what we're looking for from our artists is quality. There are formal elements of any piece of artwork that are important. One of the gluts in the art world at the moment, the most inventory, the most artists working on it, both in the United States and globally, is that contemporary abstract expressionism, what I colloquially call drag painting or throw painting, right? Where you're literally just taking the material itself and you're dragging it with brushes or with tools across the campus to create abstract color. Or a not exactly Jackson Pollock, but there's a lot of throw painting where you're literally just flinging the paint at canvases. Pour painting, right, falls into that, the acrylic pouring, where you're mixing media. That style of art, while popular, both among artists and among people who are buying art, is oversaturated. And for artists working in that field, what that means is that there is a huge amount of supply. So the demand shrinks. And as the demand shrinks, the pricing automatically has to shrink in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of understanding from a formal point of view, how you fit into a market in that style. Another way of looking at form, especially when you're, you're looking at figurative work or really precise abstract work, is the precision of the line, the, the quality of the paint, the quality of the color. One of the things that I often talk to artists about, especially when working with faces and human figures, is that your proportions have to be correct. Even a layman understands when the proportions are wonky and having a thicker or shorter leg or arm on a figure jumps out at the human eye. All we do is look at faces, look at bodies. Every interaction with another person is exactly that. It's a restructuring of our knowledge of what it means to be a human being. And when an artist doesn't match that in a formal way, the artwork really suffers and isn't marketable, isn't sellable. So those kind of formal qualities are really important, as is the display. A lot of artists show their artwork all over in competitions, in different shows, with different organizations. And when you move an artwork that's framed, the plexiglass gets scratched, the frames get chipped. There's those little things of damage that happen to the artwork. And the more damage that you build up on the age of an artwork, the more it looks aged, the more it looks like it's something that belongs in a flea market or a garage sale than something that belongs in a fine art gallery. And Mm -hmm. paying attention to those finish qualities is really important when it comes to the business of art. So those are some of the things that are requirements at Art Lounge, really making sure that the quality is clean, that the quality is fine, 
right? We're talking about fine art. Let's yeah. make sure that we're using that word correctly. <laughs> it is fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And even the person who's only spending, you know, $150, $350 on a piece of art, they don't want a chipped frame. They don't want scratched mm-hmm. plexiglass. They want something that looks brand new and is ready to go into their home brand new. And I see a lot of dust on artwork because, mm-hmm. you know, don't make too much because it'll sit around Again, <laughs> supply and demand. And dust is an easy thing to deal with because that's just cleaning, right? And understanding how to properly clean a framed piece or an unframed piece. That's not too difficult. But a lot of artwork comes into spaces that has clearly been sitting in storage and it's obvious. And so those are kind of the quality things that are really important when we're talking about the artists that come in. And what that means is that we don't take on every artist that reaches out to us. And we don't even take on the all of the artwork that the artists who come on to us are willing to put out into the world. There is a curation at every level, uh, including what we display in our store and with our partner commercial entities. And again, with those partner entities, and we're talking about hotels, designers, I have the artistry cannabis dispensaries throughout California right now, and we're, we're in the works with others. They want things that look beautiful for the displays in their locations as well. You can't put junk in the magic box at the Mondrian Hotel on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's a boutique hotel and there is a quality level that must be met. (laughs) Right. And they will see to that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And part of why they continue to work with me and really jumped on board with me is because I brought that quality to tag and I was able to prove that quality over time. They recognized it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Now on the Art Lounge website, there's a slideshow on your opportunities page. It's something you like to call a factoid, which is seven out of 10,000 artists have their work on display at any given time. This is public data from 2019 and 2020 from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans for the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Can you talk more about how you utilize consumer and public research data on both the fine art and the retail market and how that translates into pricing accessibility for the audiences that you serve. Yeah, absolutely. This is my favorite subject. I call it my soapbox. I come yeah. right up on there and I'll go forever. So that seven in 10,000, that is a estimation that I came up with based on public data. And what we're looking at is the actual public data that says about 53, 54% of the entire American population made an object of art in 2019 and 2020. And that's also pretty true the further you go back, as long as there's data available for it. So what that tells us right off the board is that U.S. Americans are a very high proportion. 
disproportional leisure society. And when we look at that 54% of the population, we're talking about any object of art. It could be a painting, it could be a sculpture. For some people that's participating in poetry or participating in theater or music in a public way. It's not just, I wrote a poem and it sits in my book. That's, Mm -hmm. I wrote a poem and I read it to the public. So, you know, you've got to shrink that down just a little bit, but then you compare that with the count of art galleries that exist in the United States, which is 21,000 private art dealers and galleries. That includes the not-for-profit organizations like Mm. TAG, like Gallery 825 over near West Hollywood. Also entities like The Hive downtown. It also includes Gagosian and Hauser & Wirth, Band of Vices, right? All of these wonderful, really top-tier galleries that exist in the United States. And there's only 21,000 of them total across the entire That's nation. very surprising. It, isn't it? More. Yeah. And Los Angeles is less than 900, somewhere between 850 and 880 uh, total private dealers and galleries. So even in Los Angeles, when you're talking about a county that has more than 10 million people in it, that's a very limited amount of opportunity for the people that are making art. So what I did is I made an assumption that across those galleries at any given time, they're showing 10 artists. And I think that's a pretty liberal estimation. (laughs) The most entities are showing one artist at a time. Tag, for instance, at any given month is typically showing four artists at a time. So 10 is pretty liberal. And when I take the math of 10 artists times 21,000 galleries and I divide it by 160 million people, what you end up with is somewhere around (laughs) seven out of 10,000 artists have the opportunity to have their artwork shown at any given time. And when you compare that with some other fun factoids, that means that you have a better chance of being born with an extra finger or toe and a better chance, whether you're a man or a woman, of being drafted to the NBA. That's astonishing. It's just astonishing. The good news is, in all the artists' favor, is it is still a better chance of winning the lottery and still a better chance than being struck by lightning. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) But you do have this down to a science. And you've treaded very different worlds between education, art, business, and being a CEO of an organization. The significant experiences that you've accumulated in each of these fields have all come under one umbrella in your position at Art Lounge. Can you please talk about that and how the genesis of Art Lounge came about? So as a kid, I always wanted a store. That was literally my dream. I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to have a store. And I didn't think about those things together necessarily. I'm an avid reader, hence the master's degree in English, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I went down that road. I like to read. And for a long time, I wanted a bookstore. I thought that would be the best Mm -hmm. thing in the world, a bookstore with a coffee shop on it. Wouldn't that be beautiful? But I also loved drawing and painting and had some wonderful experiences as a kid to learn from living master kind of artists. My family was very supportive of art instruction across the board, although not willing to pay for art school. (laughs) But so those things were always important to me and always in the back of my mind. And my work at TAG and my work 
with the cruise lines were largely happening side by side. My role at TAG was, I was a member artist. You have to be a member artist in order to take the leadership on. So I was paying to be part of that community. And because it's a not-for-profit mutual benefit organization, the only thing I'm allowed to profit on is my own individual artwork. Meaning that all of my work that I did for TAG was volunteer work. So I worked full time in communications and marketing for the cruise lines while I was running the business there at TAG. And there would be days where I'd have two phones, one on each ear, <laughs> and I'd wow. be muting one or the other. <laughs> two hats, it. two phones. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a good dance it, right there. It, it's a, quite a good dance. But the data that was available to me in cruise really opened my eyes to how big business works. And that data I could pull on a much smaller basis from TAG itself. And the more and more I worked with the big business of the cruise lines, the more access I had to really genius people when it comes to business and business theory. And the great thing about that experience is that I learned so much from it. And I was able to apply much of it to the experience at TAG. But there were barriers because of the mutual benefit organization structure, because of the nature of a cooperative versus a corporation, because of a variety of factors that really separate the two entities from each other. But what I saw is as I was looking at the data in art, that there is a huge hole in the market, a gap in what they call a gap in the business world in terms of serving that half of the entire American population that made an object of art each year. But there's also a huge gap in the consumer market in that the fine art galleries said with air quotes, mm -hmm. right? They really only serve the top 5% of the U.S. population. And that's true when you look at the global art world as well. The pricing there, the 90th percentile of pricing in the United States is $12,000. And I have a hard time spending that on the last car that I bought. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's Not because I couldn't, reach. but because I didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> And when you're talking about people that are casually spending $12,000 to $60,000, which is really the 90th to the 95th percentile of the actual artwork that sold in the United States in 2019, you're talking about people that are making more than $100 million per year. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of access to those people. <laughs> The artists that I know and work with and have known and work with for the past 10 years don't have a lot of access no. to those people. So that top tier kind of blue chip gallery space is servicing only a tiny fraction of the market. Yes, there's a lot of money there, but it's a tiny fraction of the market. And then the other place where consumers, right, are picking up art is the exact opposite. They're picking up mass produced junk. From, I'm sorry guys, Ikea, Target, <laughs> Home Goods, uh, World Market, other venues like that. And there's nothing wrong with the objects of art that you can get there. They're beautiful. They look great on your wall. 
the sculptures look great on your bookshelves. They really fill out your home. But there are millions of those exact replica objects out there in the world. That's not what fine art is about. And that's not what the culture of lifestyle that we've been pushing here in the United States is all about either. So you've got Ikea at one end and you've got Hauser and Worth at the other end. And there's nothing in the middle. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with artist Kay Ryan Hennessy of Art Lounge Collective. Thank you for listening. One of the things that was difficult with the tag artists is the understanding that if you're pricing your artwork at three to six thousand dollars, you're still talking about the 75th to like the 85th percentile of the American shopper, which means more than half of the people in the United States aren't willing to spend that money on an object of art. It becomes much more clear when you look at it that way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the shades have opened. Yeah. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. Perspective. So that gap in the market really led me to think about how could I work with artists? What kind of space could I create that was bridging it? And that's what Art Lounge is really focused on. Artists hire us. They are getting services from us. But we are different from a rent-a-wall kind of space because we pick all of our artists individually. We pick all of the artwork from those artists individually, and we control the display of that work. But I do require artists to be able to make an investment in their businesses, because that's exactly what it is. Uh, when you look at the retail world, you don't see someone else paying Frito-Lays to market a new style of chip. Frito-Lays, they have to do the research, the R&D on that. They have to put it out. And there's a reason that Doritos, right, part of the Frito-Lays line, has those set chips that have been the same over time for decades, right? Nacho cheese, Cool Ranch. And there's a reason that they do limited runs because they have to test how it works on the market. And most of those limited runs fail on the market. They lose money on most of those. Pepsi Clear, both in the, the 90s and when they tried to bring it back in the 2000s, that was a miserable failure for Pepsi Cola twice. And what most artists don't understand is that every single object of art is a new product. And exactly. most of those products are going to fail. Wow. You never thought about it that way. It's kind of a hard thing to take. When I give these feels, I'm like, I don't want you guys to quit being artists. I don't want you to quit <laughs> making art, right? I know that I, I am sometimes the doom and gloom of the art world, right? <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. <laughs> but really, it's just working smarter. 
being smarter. So that's a requirement of our art lounge artists. They are paying for the services that we do. It costs a lot of money to run a space. It costs a lot of money to produce shows in even extra spaces like the hotels, the dispensaries. There are insurance and legal requirements that have fees associated with them that we take on. And then the buy-in for us is pretty small. And I built it that way purposefully. The buy-in at TAG is $3,500 per the year. There's no other choice. It's $3,500 to be a member of that organization. The buy-in for Art Lounge ranges from $1,000 to $4,500. And that has to do with how much inventory we take on from an artist at any given time. That includes directed coaching with the artists to help them with the aspects of their art career that we don't directly touch, whether that's social media or advertising, their websites, grant proposals, solo show proposals. Those are all the things that we provide advice and services on that happen outside of the art lounge doors. And then on top of that, we're representing all of our artists to commercial venues. So right now we have a contract with the Mondrian Los Angeles, which is up on Sunset Boulevard. And we do the display in the magic box at the hotel's lobby, a beautiful, big boutique hotel. By October, we will have taken over all of the artistry cannabis dispensaries in California. So we're managing the entire curation and installation of the artwork in all of their locations. You said that's a booming business right now. A huge business. And the nice thing about all of those is it's getting more eyes on more artwork than would happen without. And we're able to really touch on those artists that might not have ever been seen by anybody else. But our focus is strictly commercial. We're not looking to fill curation for the fine art sector at all. And that's our focus, a super commercial focus, a super retail focus, and understanding that in order to be successful in both of those, we have to look at consumer data, we have to look at sales data, and we have to keep our supply, our demand, and our pricing appropriate for the target audience. And that's really the audience that's the $50,000 to $500,000 income group. Here in Los Angeles, that income group is the 45th to the 85th percentile, which is great. The median income in Los Angeles is about 56000 well above the national median of 36000 per year. When we're looking at that same income group across the entire United States, that 40% spread shrinks to 20%. It's about the 65th percentile to the 85th percentile. People in Los Angeles make more money yeah. overall than yeah. most other places in the United States. And you're reaching out to those people. Who are shopping at Ikea right now. Let's do better. <laughs> <laughs> come over come over to Art Lounge. Yeah, it's an interesting marriage. I think it's fascinating. And in addition to that, you mentioned that you are also working on a book. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. That is part of why Art Lounge came about. After the cruise line shut down, I was at home for two years, hanging out at home, doing nothing but thinking about art, working in tag, 
having a good time. And I started to conceptualize playing with these numbers, doing this research. I was like, there's a book here just on the research itself. And what I moved to and what I'm still working on is that the book isn't just about the market at all. It's actually about the theory that in a consumer society, which we've been living in since the end of feudalism, the definition of art actually becomes only those things that can be bought and sold. And it's kind of an aggressive stance on art. If it is not retailable, salable, it's not actually art. It's hobby. It's craft. It's really something other. And that's been a difficult conversation in my own head. I can hear people yelling in the background, oh my God, that's gross <laughs> capitalist ideology. And it's not. Capitalism is about a small amount of people holding a lot of money and not sharing it with everyone else. Right. Consumerism and what I'm talking about in consumerism is the buying and selling of goods repeatedly. It's trade. That's mm -hmm. all we're talking about is trade. And even when we look at early post-feudalist society, what we see is the object of patronage in art history. And that tradition of patronage exactly falls into this. The only artwork that we consider of importance now was the artwork that was purchased. That's true. Or else we wouldn't have seen it. Exactly so. It's like I said, the shades keep opening and you keep seeing this light. The awareness gets deeper. There's not much difference from historic patronage of the arts and the traditional gallery model that exists today. What's essentially happened is instead of having the celebrity artist who you make orders from and they make you beautiful things and spaces, what we have now is a very small collection of commercial entities private galleries and dealers are working with a very small amount of artists and they're making demands on those artists about the things that they can make because those things are salable. Now, the talk of the book, you said it was the genesis of Art Lounge, but then it was also three pillars that it led you to of the artist mm. experience at Art Lounge. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So I love my three pillars, if you haven't caught on to that. Structure, we need good, strong, solid foundations to hold things up. And the other thing that was a big takeaway from teaching, if you have more than five rules in your classroom, if you can't distill, then you don't actually have good classroom management. And I was even more of a sickler of that. We need three basic rules, right? And those are kindness, keep your hands to yourself and pay attention. That's perfect. Yeah. And everything else falls into those it categories. Does. I really do like my three pillars. But yes, yeah, so for Art Lounge, the three pillars are the artist services, the things that the artists are purchasing from us. I'm an artist myself. I've been working as a actual working, showing artist for more than 10 years. And it was really kind of creating from hindsight those things that were important to me and then seeing how they would work in this commercial retail context. And the tops of those are getting your art on walls, having your art displayed. That was the most important thing in the artist services, which is why we have the space in Los Angeles. And that's why we targeted commercial partnerships. But it's not enough by itself. So exhibition displays, that was of paramount importance, but also inventory management 
just the logistics of what to do with those objects is a really huge service that we provide to artists. So as we take on objects, we're taking the full control of that object from the artist. We're the only ones that sell it. We list it online. We deal with shipping. We deal with the movement from one location to the other. All of that's included. And then with our packages, there's also social media and advertising. And that's all controlled through our channels. And again, we're curating. We're very focused in the brand itself and how we disseminate that brand to the world. But what we're providing to artists is more eyes on their artwork in every channel available, including the walls. So that was really important. The second pillar is consumerism itself, retail. And making sure that we are providing services to the public who are looking to fill their homes with beautiful and unique objects. And a huge part of that is market research and market data, consumer research and consumer data. What are people spending and how much are they spending on it? Simple consumer theory. When you're looking at that 50,000 to 500,000 income group, what you see is that the casual spend of people in that space is about a half of a percent or less from every dollar that they make in a year. And that means that if you're making $50,000 per year, as long as it's something that you want, that you're highly interested in, whether it's consumer electronics, a pair of shoes, a purse, clothing, travel, anything, fine art of any kind, if it's $250 or less, that's an easy sell. People are going to buy it. But if it's $500, that's double their casual spend. They're going to think about it. And they're going to think about it for six to 18 months before they buy something else. <laughs> right. There's a gap there too. There's a yeah. gap there too. And you can extrapolate upward. Well, then at 500,000, that means that people are spending 2,500 casually. And yes, they are but they're also looking for a really good deal. You see that people get more, that percentage shrinks casually, the higher income level goes until you tip over that $100 million price point and then anything goes. But again, we're not focused on that small segment of the population. So the artist services, first pillar, Retail and consumer theory was the second pillar. And then that third pillar is how can I expand on exhibitions? And that's our commercial partnerships. And that's working with businesses, commercial entities, retailers, designers, really anything that is a business operating in the United States, we are open to working with. And that's often free low-cost rental or purchase agreements across the board. My work with the Mondrian Hotel is incredibly low-cost for them. We put on the displays for them. They throw an artist reception and provide marketing collateral in return. It's a wonderful experience for all of us involved. Are it's you? a perfect package. But again, even the hotel itself, big, beautiful lobby, that lobby is only available six times a year, which means mm -hmm. only six artists get placed every year. They're two-month-long shows. So that's still a limited engagement. The cannabis dispensaries, right now we're doing the displays in three out of the six. We'll take over the other three before October. 
those spaces are running quarter-long shows. The nice thing about those spaces is the thematic displays mean that I can show multiple artists at a time. So in the West Hollywood store, for instance, we have just under 20 artists showing right now through the end of September. And if we think about an average of 20 artists each quarter, we're actually looking at 80 artists per year that are being exhibited on the gallery walls of the dispensary, the smoking lounge, and the events room, which is pretty exciting and pretty enticing. And then as we scale those across the multiple venues, what we're actually looking at is almost 300 artists are going to be shown at any given quarter. And that's more opportunity than an artist can get just from us directly than they can get from any other entity operating in the United States. That's really wonderful. Previously, you were talking about the amount of actual square footage available for the artists to be shown in. It's huge. Our store here in Los Angeles, which is the La Brea neighborhood. So we're at La Brea, just south of Beverly. And our space is just under 4,500 square feet. So it's a pretty nice, sizable retail location. When you add in the Mondrian Hotel and the three artistry dispensaries that we're working with currently, you're looking at about 20, 25,000 linear feet of display space. By the time we add the other three, we'll be close to 50, 55,000 linear feet of display space. So it's a lot. And we are continuing to work with other partners on other partnerships, talking with various entities, such as some of the big condominium projects where they want rotating art in their lobbies for the residents. We talk to designers. We talk with home stagers that work in that space. All of those things allow us to expand the footprint that our artists are touching on. And my goal is to be around 100,000 linear feet by the end of the year. At 150,000, we're going to be competitive in terms of just space, although our audiences are very different with Hauser & Wirth, which is the largest art gallery in all of the United States. That's so exciting. I drive around a lot and I lift and take down artwork a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting your workout too. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, very physical lifestyle. So you are providing value. And you said every time an artist has an experience with a commercial entity, they're more viable for other commercial entities as well. So it's just spreading the love, spreading the wealth, and spreading the accessibility for the customers that you serve. It's a lot like public art, where there's the catch-22 of a corporation doesn't want to work with you unless you've worked with another corporation before. But if no corporation ever lets you work with them, how are you ever to get that corporate experience? Because we are a corporation. Art Lounge is a company in its own right. They're more willing to talk to us than they are with hundreds of individual artists. Part of why we're having such a great success with the cannabis dispensaries is because they found over the last two years that in order to fill those 80 artists for one space, they have to have 80 individual conversations. It's time consuming and the priority of their business is cannabis retail, not artists. The priority of my business is artists. So we're filling that gap for them. Mm -hmm. 
You were talking about another factoid about a price point and having your artists work within certain price point parameters in order to sell a piece of work. You gave the example of the canvas that you sold. It was a collage. Yeah, Yeah. I I work mostly in collage. That's my primary medium. I like glue and paper. As much as I love to read, I also love to tear up old books. That's interesting. That's fun. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure there's some psychology to be read into that. I'm not going to examine it. Somebody else can. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah, so uh, the research on the art market itself, just the private dealers and private art galleries in the United States, the median price point of every object that's sold was $875 in 2019, which is, again, the last time the data was fully compiled Mm. and published. So $875 was the dead center. And what that means is that more than half of everything that is considered an object of fine art, and we are not talking about IKEA here, we're talking about just the private dealers and galleries, was under $1,000. And when we look at the same research at auction, which has nothing to do with artists and everything to do with auction houses, private dealers, and the buyers and sellers of artwork, because artists don't make money off of the resale of their artwork in the United States. That's a crime. (laughs) It is in California, but nobody ever pursues it. So even at auction, the median price point for objects of art, for fine art, which is wall art, sculpture, photography, is $940. So still more than half of everything that's sold for people that are looking at art as investment was under $1,000. And that's really important to understand when you are making an object that you want to sell. The story that I told you the other day about that collage, I purposefully made it following my own research and rule parameters. And what I did is I used a reclaimed wood board panel that was five feet by three feet. So pretty big wood board, but it was a discarded piece of artwork that had been damaged and the artist didn't want to salvage it. And so I took the wood board. It was great wood board, sanded it down gessoed it over and repainted it and put a collage on top of it. And my paint was all from previous projects, whether they were art projects or home improvement projects. So I'd already spent the money on the materials. Um, In fact, the only materials that I used for that collage was a $20 set of 100 Milagro off of Amazon. And that was 100 pieces of Milagro. I only used about 40 of them. Right. So we're talking about eight dollars in value on the actual spend for this object. And yeah, I spent money on all of the books, but a lot of my collage uses atlases, maps, historic things about California or Los Angeles. So people also just give me those as gifts when they're cleaning their libraries, emptying their garages. They're like, oh, Ryan loves maps. Let's give him a bunch of atlases. And I take them because I love that. So really, we're talking about less than $20 in the total spend of making that piece of artwork, which helps me because it means I can keep my final sale cost of it super low. But also considering the size, I said to myself, knowing that the average artwork is less than $875, I don't want to work above that. I want to 
and be able to sell it at that under $1,000 price point, which means that the maximum amount of time that I want to spend on this artwork, because I know my value, not just as an artist, but also I know my value as a business person. I said, I don't want to spend more than 10 hours making this piece of artwork. And I didn't. I spent about six and a half hours making the piece of artwork. It helps that I've been working in that style for a handful of years. And it is kind of my signature segmentation of the body where I'm breaking the body apart with different collage elements and filling Mm -hmm. them back in, some of which is painted, some of which is paper, some of which is materials, odd materials like the Milagro. So I'm quick at it. I'm skilled at it. I've, I've really learned how to work that well. And my final pricing on the artwork was $575. And that's pretty impressive for a piece of artwork that's really huge. (laughs) But the nice thing about that is when I'm factoring in the cost in materials, let's call it $20, right? My return on investment on that $20 is a factor of 20 times greater. And most artists don't see that. What you're seeing in return of material investment across fine art anecdotally And this is just years of experience, years of seeing what actually sold, having the data tag, seeing what's happening here at Art Lounge. It's somewhere between half again and two and a half again, the value of the material costs, which means that if it costs you $100 to make a piece of artwork, the actual retail price of it on average is somewhere between $150 and $350, two and a half times plus the cost of the artwork. And that's pretty low when you're talking about retail investments. Most things that consumers are buying in the United States have a minimum markup of 400%. I wear it, oh, um, they're in the other room, is one (laughs) of my favorite. (laughs) The average pair of glasses that, which are a requirement, right? They are a necessity for the people who need them. And we're talking like even reading glasses, right? That you can buy at Walmart. The average pair of glasses that a consumer buys in the United States has a minimum markup of 400%. It costs them less than a handful of dollars to make those items. And we are paying two to a thousand, 200 to a thousand dollars per pair. But the reason they can do that is because of mass production. Fine art doesn't utilize mass production. And artists, because art is a leisure activity, are already paying the markup for their materials. When you buy a tube of paint, you're paying on average a 200 to 400% markup on the material cost of those things already. And you cannot then put that same markup on top of that object that you make because it's already there. Wow. I've never thought about it that way. That's very interesting. Yeah. So it's really about understanding first, what's the median? What are the things that are actually selling in the United States? And knowing that the median is $875, that the 90th percentile is $12,000 really gives you an understanding of what you should be making for the markets you serve. If you know people who make more than $100 million a year, and that is your society that you operate in all the time, please make artwork that is more than (laughs) $12,000 all the time. More power to you. But if your peerage is the $50,000 income group, 
you need to understand that your peerage will only pay $250 for an object. And you had broken that down into an hourly rate too. I think it was about $22 oh. $25 an hour, you said. Yeah, absolutely. That's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So here's some dismal numbers. Brace yourselves, everyone. In the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, this is the 2019 and 2020 data, the actual count of artists in the United States that declared income as fine artists, meaning people who actually made money and had to pay taxes on it, was 120,000 people. That's out of more than 360 million. So not even a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. That's it. That's the count of people that made money and had to pay taxes on the things that they made. So that's painting, sculpture, anything of that milieu. When you include photographers, it's only double that. So it's another 120,000 photographers declared income as photographers in the United States, which means 240,000 people working as artists in those capacities. And when you then look at the income, the nice thing is it's well above average income in terms of earning. Artists who typically are highly educated on the median point for those 120,000 artists was $56,000 per year, which is a really great income when you consider that the national median is 36000 per year. Yeah. The median hourly rate for artists of those 120,000 artists is $22.50 per hour, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you compare it to the national average, which is well below $12, it's a really great hourly wage and well above even the minimum wage in California, which is worth noting. Minimum wage still is hovering around the $15 mark here in yeah. California. And depending on where you are, it could be a little bit less or it could be a little bit more. But when you drive around the country, Utah, Wyoming, <laughs> South Dakota, the minimum wage is seven fifty. Way down there. Yeah. Way down yeah. there. The numbers are awakening. I will say that. That is how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> but what's great about it is you are sharing this with your artists that you work with and helping them out. We also share them with the larger artist community broadly. We host free workshops for artists on the regular out of our store here at Art Lounge Collective. Yes, there are some pay requirements to be part of our organization to join our collective, but that doesn't mean that we're only providing advice or providing opportunities for those artists that pay us. And that's part of the democratization is understanding that not everybody can afford that $100 a month or that $1,000 a year, even at our base level. And it's really important to me to be able to ensure that we provide services for everyone. And really part of that is to make sure that when they are ready, when they are capable, they then want to work with us and purchase services from us. That's great. So I just wanted to know what is coming up in the immediate future for Art Lounge Collective? The immediate future is we will be taking over the Artistry Riverside. So that's another of the cannabis dispensaries. Uh, in the next two weeks, we'll be installing the display there. We just finished up a refresh of the display here at our store. And our monthly reception will be on the 26th. 
of August from 7 to 10 p.m. And people can always look on our calendar to see when the next monthly reception will be. We alternate Friday and Saturday nights for those. We'll be hosting a workshop Wednesday the 31st at 2 p.m. here in the store, and that's Commissions for Artists, How to Build a Commission Contract. And that's open to the public, free to attend. That's great. Can you please tell us, where can we find you? Oh, yes. So Art Lounge Collective can be found at artlounge.co. That's a .co ending for the organization. We are Art Lounge Collective on Instagram and Art Lounge Co. on Twitter and Facebook. My personal is K Ryan Hennessy, and that's true across the board, kryanhennessy.com and at kryanhennessy on any social platform. Great. Well, Kay Ryan Hennessy, thank you so much for sharing Art Lounge and yourself with us today on Angel City Culture Quest. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.